Section 40 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 40. Chapter 12a, The Asiatic Background, by T. Peisker, Part 1. The Asiatic background has its basis in the immense zone of steppes and deserts which stretches from the Caspian Sea to the Kingan Mountains, and is divided into two regions by the Pamir and the Tian Shan Ranges. The western region, like the whole lowland district of West Asia, even to the extreme north, is a deserted seabed. The eastern, Tarim Basin and Gobi, seems formerly to have been covered with great freshwater lakes. The water basins began to evaporate and to shrink to inland seas, while the intervening country became a desert. The largest remains of former enormous water basins are the Salt Caspian Sea and the Sweetwater Aral Sea. In both regions, all the moisture that falls evaporates, so that no rivers reach the open sea. Most of them ooze away in the sand, and only the greatest, such as the Sir, Amu, Ili, Chu, Tarim, flow into large inland seas. The fact that the evaporation is greater than the fall of moisture, and that the latter takes place chiefly in the cold season, has important consequences which account for the desert nature of the land. All the salt which is released by the weathering and decomposition of the soil remains in the ground, and only in the higher regions, with greater falls of moisture, and by the banks of rivers, is the soil sufficiently lixiviated to be fit for cultivation. Everywhere else is steppe and desert absolutely uncultivable. The surface of the land can be divided into six categories, sand deserts, gravel deserts, salt steppes, loam steppes, less land, and rocky mountains. Of these, the sand deserts form by far the greatest part. They consist of fine drift sand, which the driving storm wind forms into sickle-shaped shifting dunes, barkans. The loose drift sand is waterless, and for the most part without vegetation. The barkans, however, here and there, display a few poor saxol and other shrubs. Human life is impossible. The gravel deserts, also very extensive, which form the transition between the sand deserts and the steppes, and serve the nomads as grazing grounds in their wanderings to and from winter quarters and summer pastures. The adjoining salt steppes, consisting of loam and sand, are so impregnated with salt that the latter settles down on the surface like rime. In spring, they bear a scanty vegetation, which, on account of its saline nature, affords excellent pasture for numerous flocks of sheep. During the rain of autumn and spring, the loam steppes, consisting of less soil mixed with much sand, are covered with luxuriant verdure and myriads of wildflowers, especially tulips, and, on the drier ground, with camel thorn, alhagi camelorum, without which the camel could not exist for any length of time. These steppes form the real pastures of the nomads. In the less land, Agriculture and gardening are only possible where the soil has been sufficiently softened by rainfall and artificial canals and is constantly irrigated. It forms the subsoil of all cultivable oases. Without irrigation, the soil becomes in summer as hard as concrete and its vegetation dies completely. 
The oases comprise only 2% of the total area of Turkestan. As a rule, the Rocky Mountains are quite bare. They consist of black, gleaming stone cracked by frost and heat and are waterless. Roughly speaking, these differences of vegetation follow one another from south to north, that is, the salt, the sand, and the grass steppes. A little below 50 degrees north latitude, the landscape of West Asia changes in consequence of a greater fall of moisture. The undrained lakes become less frequent, the rivers reach the sea, Ishim, Tobal, etc., and trees appear. Here begins, as a transition to the compact forest land, the tree steppe on the very fertile black earth. On the Yenise are park-like districts with splendid grass plains and luxuriant trees. Northward come endless pine forests, and beyond them, towards the Arctic Sea, is the moss steppe or tundra. The climate is typically continental, with icy cold winters, hot summers, cold nights, and hot days, with enormous fluctuations of temperature. The warmth increases quickly from winter to spring and decreases just as quickly from summer to autumn. In West Turkestan, the summer is almost cloudless and rainless, and at this time the steppes become deserts. On account of the dryness, little snow falls. As a rule, it remains loose and is whirled aloft by the northeast storm wind, buran. These storm burans are just as terrible as the summer storms of salt dust in Transcaspia at a temperature of 104 to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Considering that in summer the temperature sometimes reaches 118 degrees in the shade, exceeding body heat by 20 degrees, and that in the winter it seeks below minus 31 degrees, and further that the heat, especially in the sand deserts, reaches a degree at which the white of egg coagulates, the climate, even if not deadly, should be very injurious to man. Hindustan, which is far less hot, enervates the European on account of the greater moisture and has changed the Aryan, once so energetic, to the weak and cowardly Hindu. Nevertheless, the contrary is the case. The climate of Turkestan is wholesome, and its people are long-lived and healthy, and that especially in the hot summer, on account of the unparalleled dryness of the air. Once acclimatized, one bears the heat very well, and likewise the extreme cold of winter. The climate of Central Asia furthers a rapid bodily and mental development and premature aging, as well as corpulence, especially among the Altaians. Obesity is even regarded as a distinction, and it became so native to the mounted nomads that it accompanied them to Europe. It is characteristic of all the nomads who have invaded Europe, and Hippocrates mentions it expressly as a characteristic of the Scythians. The climate of Turkestan also influences the character leading to an apathy which creates indifference to the heaviest blows of fate and even accompanies the condemned to the scaffold. The entire West Asiatic region, from the salt steppes to the compact forest land, forms one economic whole. The well-watered northern part, which remains green throughout the summer, feeds countless herds in the warm season, but affords no pasturage in winter owing to the deep snow. On the other hand, the southern part, which is poor in water, the grass, sand, and salt steppes, is uninhabitable in summer. Thus, the northern part provides summer pastures. The southern, the Aral-Caspian Basin, winter pastures to one and the same nomad people. The nomad, then, is the sun and product of the peculiar and variable constitution, 
which nevertheless is an indivisible economic whole, of the Asiatic background. Any agriculture worthy of the name is impossible in the steppes and deserts, the few oases excepted, on account of the dryness of the summer, when animals also find no food. Life on the steppes and deserts is only possible in connection either with the Siberian grass region or with the mountains. This life is necessarily extremely hard and restless for man and beast, and it creates a condition of nomadism, which must at the same time be a mounted nomadism, seeing that a wagon would be an impossibility in the long trackless wanderings over mountain and valley, river and swamp, and that goods and chattels, together with the disjoinable dwellings, can only be carried on the backs of beasts of burden. Setting aside the glacial period and the small Bruckner cycle of 35 years or so, the climactic changes of Central Asia, according to Huntington, fall into cycles of several hundred years' duration, within which the aridity rises and sinks considerably. Quote, all Central Asia has undergone a series of climactic pulsations during historic times. There seems to be strong evidence that at the time of Christ, or earlier, the climate was much moister and more propitious than it now is. Then, during the first few centuries of the Christian era, there appears to have been an epoch of increasing aridity. It culminated about A.D. 500, at which time the climate appears to have been drier than at present. Next came an epoch of more propitious climate, which reached its acme about A.D. 900. There is a little evidence of a second epoch of aridity, which was especially marked in the 12th century. Finally, in the later Middle Ages, a rise in the level of the Caspian Sea and the condition of certain ruins render it probable that climactic conditions once again became somewhat favorable, only to give place ere long to the present aridity. End of quote. But Central Asia has not been, since the beginning of historic records, in a state of desiccation. The process of geological desiccation was already ended in prehistoric times, and even the oldest historic accounts testify to the same climactic conditions as those of today. The earliest Babylonian kings maintained irrigation works, and Hammurabi, 23rd century BC, had canals made through the land, one of which bore his name. Thus, at present, without artificial irrigation, agriculture was not possible there 4,200 years ago. Palestine's climate, too, has not changed in the least since biblical times. Its present waste condition is the result of Turkish mismanagement, and Biot has proved from the cultivated plants grown in the earliest times that the temperature of China has remained the same for 3,300 years. Curtius Rufus and Arian give similar accounts of Bactria. Amid the enormous wastes, there are countless sand-buried ruins of populous cities, monasteries, and villages, and choked-up canals standing on ground won from the waste by systematic canalization. Where the system of irrigation was destroyed, the earlier natural state, the desert, returned. The causes of such destruction are manifold. 1. Earthquake. 2. Violent rain spouts, after which the river does not find its former bed, and the canals receive no more water from it. 3. On the highest edge of the steppe, at the foot of the glacier, lie enormous flat heaps of debris, and here the canalization begins. If one side of this heap rises higher than the other, the direction of the current is shifted, and the oases nurtured by the now forsaken stream become derelict. But the habitable ground simply migrates with the river. If, for example, 
a river altered its course four times in historic times, three series of ruins remain behind. But it is erroneous simply to add these ruins together, and to conclude from them that the whole once formed a flourishing land which has become waste, when in reality the three series of settlements did not flourish side by side, but consecutively. This fallacy vitiates all accounts which assume a progressive or periodic desiccation as the chief cause of the abandonment of oases. 4. Continuous drought, in consequence of which the rivers become so waterless that they cannot feed the canals of the lower river basin, and thus the oases affected must become parched and are not always resettled in more favorable years. 5. Neglect of the extreme care demanded in the administration of the canal system. If irrigation is extended in the district next to the mountain from which the water comes, just so much water is taken from the lower oases. But in this case, too, nothing is lost which cannot be replaced in another direction. Vice versa, if an oasis on the upper course of the river disappears through losing its canal system, the lower river course thus becomes well watered and makes possible the formation of a new oasis. 6. The most terrible mischief is the work of enemies. In order to make the whole oasis liable to tribute, they need only seize the main canal, and the nomads often blindly plundered and destroyed everything. A single raid was enough to transform hundreds of oases into ashes and desert. The nomads, moreover, not only ruined countless cities and villages of Central Asia, but they also denuded the steppe itself and promoted drift sand by senseless uprooting of trees and bushes for the sake of firewood. But for them, according to Berg, there would be little drift sand in Central Asia, for in his opinion, all sand formations must in time become firm. All the sand deserts which he observed on the Aral Sea and in Semirychensk were originally firm, and even now most of them are still kept firm by the vegetation. With the very dangers of irrigation systems, it is impossible to decide, in the case of each group of ruins, what causes have produced them. It is therefore doubtful whether we can place in the foreground the secular changes of climate. It is not even true that the cultivation of the oases throve better in the damper and cooler periods than in the arid and hot ones. Thus, the oases of Turfan in Chinese Turkestan, which is so extremely arid and so unendurably hot in summer, are exceptionally fertile. We may therefore conclude that the cultivation of the oases was considerably more extended in the damper and cooler periods, but considerably less productive than in the arid and hot ones of today. Changes in the volume of water of single rivers and lakes are clearly apparent within short periods, and these lead to frequent local migrations of the peasant population and to new construction as well as to the abandonment of irrigation canals. Thus there is here a continual local fluctuation in the settlements, but history knows nothing of regular migrations of agriculturists. Still less is an unfavorable climactic change the cause of the nomad invasions of Europe. The nomad does not remain at all during the summer, in the parched steppe and desert, and in the periods of increasing aridity and summer heat, South Siberia was warmer, and the mountain glaciers retreated, and hence the pastures in both these directions were extended. The only consequence of this was that the distance between summer and winter pastures increased, and the nomad had to wander further and quicker. The computation is correct in itself, 
that the number of animals that can be reared to the square mile depends on and varies with the annual rainfall. But the nomad is not hampered by square miles. The poorer or richer the growth of grass, the shorter or longer time he remains, and he is accustomed from year to year to fluctuations in the abundance of his flocks. Moreover, a shifting of the winter pastures is not impossible, for their autumn and spring vegetation is not destroyed by a progressive aridity, and if the water current changes its bed, the nomad simply follows it. Further, the effect of a secular progressive aridity is spread over so many generations that it is not catastrophic for any one of them. The nomad invasions of China and Europe must therefore have had other causes, and we know something about the invasions of several nomad hordes, of the Avars, Turks, Osmans, and Cumans, for example. Since the second half of the 5th century AD, that is, the time to which Huntington assigns the greatest aridity, there had existed in the Oxus Basin the powerful empire of the Ephthalite Horde, on the ruins of which the Empire of the West Turks was founded in the middle of the 6th century. Had Central Asia been at that time so arid and therefore poor in pasture, the then victorious horde would have driven out the other hordes in order to secure for themselves more pasture land. Yet, exactly the opposite took place. The Turks enslaved the other hordes, and when the Avars fled to Europe, the Turkish Kagan claimed them back at the Byzantine court. In like manner, the Turks, Osmans, fled from the sword of the Mongols in 1225 from Khorasan to Armenia, and in 1235 the Cumans fled to Hungary. The violence of the Mongols is strikingly described by Gibbon. Quote, from the Caspian to the Indus, they ruined a tract of many hundred miles, which was adorned with the habitations and labors of mankind, and five centuries have not been sufficient to repair the ravages of four years. End of quote. Therefore, the main cause of the nomad invasions of Europe is not increasing aridity, but political changes. There remains the question, how did the nomads originate? On the theory of a progressive desiccation, it is assumed that the Aryan peasantry of Turkestan was compelled to take to a nomad life through the degeneration of their fields to steppes and wastes. But the peasant bound to the soil is incapable of a mode of life so unsettled and requiring of him much new experience. Robbed of his cornfields and reduced to beggary, could he be at the same time so rich as to procure himself the herds of cattle necessary to his existence? and so gifted with divination as suddenly to wander with them in search of pasture over immeasurable distances. A decrease of cultivable soil would bring about only a continual decrease in the number of inhabitants. The peasant, as such, disappeared, emigrated, or perished, and his home became a desert, and was occupied by another people who knew from experience how to make use of it in its changed state, that is, as winter grazing ground. This new people must have been already nomadic and have made their way from the pastures of the north, and therefore they must have belonged to the Altaian race. The Delta Oases have been the home of man from early prehistoric time, throughout Turkestan and northern Persia. The two oldest culture strata of Anau prove that the settlers of the first culture cultivated wheat and barley, had rectangular houses of air-dried bricks, but only wild animals at first, out of which were locally domesticated the long-horned ox, the pig, and horse, and successively two breeds of sheep. The second culture had the domestic ox, both long and short-horned, the pig and the horse. 
the domestic goat, camel, and dog appear, and a new hornless breed of sheep. The cultivation of cereals was discovered in Asia long before B.C. 8000. The domestication of cattle, pigs, and sheep, and probably of the horse, was accomplished at Anau between B.C. 8000 and 6800. Consequently, the agricultural stage preceded the nomadic shepherd stage in Asia. It follows, therefore, that before domestication of animals was accomplished, mankind in Central Asia was divided sharply into two classes, settled agriculturists on the one hand, and hunters who wandered within a limited range on the other hand. When the nomadic hunters became shepherds, they necessarily wandered between ever-widening limits, as the season and pasturage required for increasing herds. The establishment of the first domestic breeds of pigs, long-horned cattle, large sheep, and horses was followed by a deteriorating climate, which may have, as Pompelli, though questionably, assumes, changed these to smaller breeds. Dr. Durst identifies the second breed of sheep with the Turbary sheep, Torfschaf, and the pig with the Turbary pig, Torfschwein, which appear as already domesticated in the Neolithic stations of Europe. They must therefore have been descendants of those domesticated on the oases of the Anal district. They make their appearance in European Neolithic stations apparently contemporaneously with an immigration of a people of a round-headed Asiatic type, which seems to have infiltrated gradually among the prevailing long-headed Europeans. The presumption is, therefore, that these animals were brought from Asia by this round-headed people and that we have in this immigration perhaps the earliest post-glacial factor in the problem of Asiatic influence in European racial as well as cultural origins, for they brought with them both the art of cattle breeding and some knowledge of agriculture. The skulls of the first and second cultures in Enau are all dolichocephalic or mesocephalic, without a trace of the round-headed element. We are therefore justified in assuming that the domestication and the forming of the several breeds of domestic animals were effected by a long-headed people. And since the people of the two successive cultures were settled oasis agriculturists and breeders, we may assume as probable that agriculture and settled life in towns on the oases originated among people of a dolichocephalic type. Since Dr. Durst identifies the second breed of sheep established during the first culture of Anau with the Turbary sheep in Europe, contemporaneously with skulls of the round-headed Galka type, it should follow that the domestic animals of the European Neolithic stations were brought thither, together with wheat and barley, by round-headed immigrants of an Asiatic type. Since the original agriculturists and breeders were long-headed, it seems probable that the immigrants were broad-headed nomads, who, having acquired from the Oasis people domestic animals and rudimentary agriculture of the kind still practiced by the shepherd nomads of Central Asia, infiltrated among the Neolithic settlements of Eastern and Central Europe and adopted the stone implement culture of the hunting and fishing peoples among whom they came. In this connection, it is not without significance that throughout the whole historical period, the combination of settled town life and agriculture has been the fundamental characteristic of the Aryan-speaking Galkas and of the Iranians inhabiting Western Central Asia and the Persian Plateau, while the peoples of pure Asiatic Mongoloid type have been essentially shepherd nomads, who is already shown 
could have become shepherds only after the settled agriculturists of the oases had established domesticated breeds of cattle. The origin of the taming of wild into domestic animals is one of the most difficult problems of economic history. What was its aim? The use that we could make of domestic animals? Certainly not, for adaptability thereto could only gradually be imparted to the animals, and could not be foreseen. It could not be anticipated that the cow and the goat would ever give more milk than their young needed, and that beyond the time of lactation. Nor could it be anticipated that sheep not woolly by nature would develop a fleece. Even for us, it would be too uneconomical to breed such a powerful animal and such a large consumer of fodder as the ox merely for a supply of meat. And besides, beef is not readily eaten in Central Asia. Moreover, the wild ox is entirely unsuitable for draft, for it is one of the shyest as well as strongest and most dangerous of animals. And it should be specially emphasized that a long step lies between taming individual animals and domesticating them, for as a rule, wild animals, however well tamed, do not breed in captivity. Consequently, the domestication was not produced simply by taming or for economic ends. It is the great service of Edward Hahn to have laid down the theory that the domestication, involuntary and unforeseen, was the result of forcing for religious purposes certain favorite animals of certain divinities into reservations, where they remained reproductive, and at the same time gradually lost their original wildness through peaceful contact with man. The beasts of sacrifice were taken from these enclosures. Thus originated the castrated ox which quietly let itself be yoked before the sacred car, and by systematic milking for sacrificial purposes, the milk secretion of the cow and the goat were gradually increased. Lastly, when man perceived what he had gained from the animals, he turned to his own use the peculiarities thus produced by enclosure and gradual domestication. In general, cattle rearing is unknown to the severest kind of nomadism. The ox soon dies of thirst, and it has not sufficient endurance or speed for the enormous wanderings. Its flesh has little value in the steppe. The animals actually employed for rearing and food are consequently the sheep, to a less extent the goat as leader of the sheep flocks, the horse, and here and there the ass. Also, in smaller number, the two-humped camel, in Tehran the one-humped dromedary as well, as a beast of burden. Where the district admits of it, and long wanderings are not necessary, e.g. in Mongolia, in the Pamir, in the Amu Delta, in South Russia, etc., the Altaian has engaged in cattle breeding from the remotest times. A wealthy Mongolian possesses as many as 20,000 horses, and still more sheep. Rich Kyrgyz sometimes have hundreds of camels, thousands of horses, tens of thousands of sheep. The minimum for a Kyrgyz family of five is five oxen, 28 sheep, and 15 horses. Some have fewer sheep, but the number of horses cannot sink below 15, for a stud of mares with their foals is indispensable for the production of kumis. The Turkoman is poorest in horses. However, the Turkoman horse is the noblest in the whole of Central Asia, and surpasses all other breeds in speed, endurance, intelligence, faithfulness, and a marvelous sense of locality. It serves for riding and milk-giving only, and is not a beast of burden, as are the camel, the dromedary, or the ox. The Turkoman horse is tall, with long, narrow body, 
long thin legs and neck, and a small head. It is nothing but skin, bones, muscles, and sinews, and even with the best attention it does not fatten. The mane is represented by short, bristly hairs. On their predatory expeditions, the Turkomans often cover 650 miles in the waterless desert in five days, and that with their heavy booty of goods and men. Their horses attain their greatest speed when they have galloped from 7 to 14 miles, and races over such a distance as that from London to Bristol are not too much for them. Of course, they owe their powers to the training of thousands of years in the endless steppes and deserts, and to the continual plundering raids, which demanded the utmost endurance and privation of which horse and rider were capable. The least attractive to look at in Turkestan is the Kyrgyz horse, which is small, powerful, and strong-maned. During snowstorm or frost, it often does without food for a long time. It is never sheltered under a roof, and bears minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit in the open air, and the extremest summer heat, during which it can do without water, for from three to four days. It can easily cover 80 miles a day, and never tastes barley or oats in its life. End of section 40. Recording by Colleen McMahon.